Welcome to the Abstract Doctors Podcast. Today, Dr. G and Dr. C speak with speaker, artist, and teacher, Alexa Miller. For more information on Alexa, please visit artspractica.com backslash events backslash. Visit the Abstract Doctors for information on upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors Podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say ah. Hey, Dave. Welcome to the Abstract Doctors. We got a great guest today. Uh, We have Alexa Miller. And yes, Dave did have to turn off his Alexa because it was already disrupting today's podcast. Uh, Alexa uh, is in this, works in this space. I, these are my words, please modify them. In the space sort of between uh, uh, art, healthcare, and decision-making. She's uh, developed a program at Harvard. She now works with medical schools and art museums. She has her own uh, business. She's worked with uh, performance uh, companies. So even the, the, the physiological uh, aspects as well, uh, I am extremely excited to have her guest and learn about because I don't know much exactly what she does, and I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, I agree. I, I even read your awesome website. I still don't know what you do, but it's awesome, and, and, and I think we should do more of it. And, and, and the sessions impact the doctors. I read everything was cool. I'm like, okay, like, like, but we, I'm, I'm teasing, of course, but, but if, if we'd love for you to kind of give us. Uh, a little some, something more just so the listeners can can really uh, hear about it. And welcome, Alexa. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited for this conversation. I appreciate your curiosity and we have a lot to talk about. And I think we're going to need to do a follow up where I interview you guys because there's so much about the whole world of physiology and pain management and creativity that you guys are doing that I'm super curious about. Um, but so, uh, so, and I'm embarrassed that you read my website and you can't tell what I actually do, but that's actually- it's important. important. I can tell it was yeah. significant. I just don't know in what so space. Yeah. It's actually kind of telling because um, my work right now is at, at a pivot point and I'm actually going to be launching a new website um, in the coming months that's much more focused on- the challenge of uncertainty in medicine and the art and the science of co-creating health um, in medicine. So it'll be much, much more focused on that. Uh, but and but um, so in a nutshell, that's what I do. But my you know my current website has a lot of other stuff that's related to that um, from my background as a visual artist and a facilitator. Um, of arts discussions and um, some of the sites I've had the opportunity to work with over the years and, um, you know, some of the research that's come out of of this space between um, training in the health professions and how, what and how we can learn in arts experiences. And there's a whole sort of growing water table around that. So I was very lucky because I sort of the timing of, of my work in that space kind of came at a time when a lot of uh, medical schools and, and schools of training were yeah. beginning to engage the arts more. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the whole concept of lack, and, and, and this is not a criticism, but this, that lack of focus you know, and that and that that creativity that that that, yeah. that pervades your website. 
that's actually what the goods are. So it's, I'm yeah. glad, you know, you know because, because we physicians are, you know, are trained in this, you're supposed to be laser focused on yeah. understanding what's going on and what the, what the differential diagnosis and what's causing it. And in reality, that's no patients that I've ever taken care of actually come with a singular, oh, I have a headache. Oh, it must be that nail in your head. You know, it, it isn't like that, right? You know, they bring to them, to the table, to my visit, to whatever it is, all this baggage, some of them good, some of it bad, and with, with a range of causes that even if there is something obvious that's causing it, you often peel back like, well, why are you coming to see a professional for something that's so obvious like like what you know what, what is it about your background you know that that that, that we can kind of um uh, dive into and say we could actually set it up so next time you're feeling great and you realize you have a little problem and you fix it we actually empower the patient with the tools but doctors are terrible at this oh yeah we are terrible and we don't use creativity at any level like it, it's actually stripped from us you know, I used to, I'm actually fairly creative, but I, I used to be like, like all over the place and I actually became more focused and it was the worst thing that ever happened to me, you know, but that's how you get through med school and do stuff. So. Yeah. 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 Ron, Ron, go right. I can see you're dying to say something when I was saying something. So I apologize. No, I, I, I have uh, a comment, but I want to hear our, our guest speak. Uh, Go, take it away, Alexa. No, no, no. You go ahead. Go ahead. All right. So let me see if I can do my best reductionism uh, to get towards creativity. So so I, I believe we should be and are moving, at least when we're talking tightly, about away from the word stress. And it, there's two components. And there's the threat response, which I believe fear underlies that. And, and you know, my work is about the physiological response of defueling the threat response, but it's really threat times uncertainty. And, and uncertainty is, is sort of where, where your thrust of your work is. And we got to recognize that, that uh, threat and uncertainty, and it's proven, uh, interplay and worsen stress and perception of stress. So, so that could be really where the cognitive, the brain health, the creativity, uh, moving through different parts of your brain, um, dealing with uncertainty. And that's how I think our work. Well, well, Ron, are you talking about the uncertainty of the physicians or the clinicians? I won't use that term. Clinicians like, like knowing what they're doing and knowing how to approach a patient. Are you talking about the, the quote, so, patient or the, the non-clinicians? So, well, are you, well or, I, I think some of what Alexa's work is about the uncertainty of diagnosis, di yeah. working someone up this, yeah. this is under stress. I'm so glad you went right to that um, because like, you know, I, I have one of, I, I think of uncertainty as un, un, people often don't realize that in uncertainty, they have choices and often behavior is influenced by fear or a sen sense of threat. So there's this term called like uncertainty aversion, right? Like having, having an aversion to uncertainty in the first place. And that's where um, fear starts to underlie um, the response and the responses can become, I mean, fear, sometimes a fear response is appropriate. So it's not like, you know, like a fear-based response to uncertainty is necessarily non-normative, but um, 
like the more adaptive strategies to uncertainty come from, you know, and this is definitely a hook with, with your work, like mm -hmm. that soothing, the, you know, the de-escalating de the, the threat, the aversion to uncertainty and finding that place of calm, openness, curiosity, flexibility. And that's where people can actually, you know, work together human to human and see, you know, see the big picture in a more complete way and find uh, more choices. Wow. So, you know, I'm really interested in the most adaptive yeah. strategies um, in uncertainty. That's one of the things I've studied. Um, and, you know, there are skills like art skills, like observation being one, but also like the way in which people use language and keep themselves calm and, you know. Wow, this is cool. Yeah. That, um, yeah. But there's, you know, there's, I think a whole other set of adaptive strategies that come from within the the being and the physiology and like the you know the breathing and the self-talk and the the ways in which um in which people manage stress and that, that's on the clinician side but there also is a whole lot of stuff on the patient side too around patient uncertainty and there's a whole wealth yeah. of research I've, I've only learned about more recently but people actually studying you know patients who legitimately have complex things going on and diseases who aren't believed by doctors and the way in which they find agency and, and still get to their diagnosis. Um, so it's wow. certainly all sides. Um, we, we, I, yeah. In my class on medical uncertainty, we, we look at patient uncertainty, we look at clinician uncertainty, and then we look at the art of co-creating health and the art of seeing. Um, but um, yeah, but I'm, I'm super interested in the work you guys are doing and the whole performance space generally and how like it's coming into healthcare and helping clinicians recognize that they too have a body. It's not just patients, right? Um, so yeah, lots to explore. Yeah. I, I, I did a, a little piece yesterday with uh, some folks in the military related to COVID and vaccinations and 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 the uncertainty that that many of them feel, and their, their, their resistance to, to getting vaccines, and you know it. You know, obviously, I'm I'm sympathetic to to folks that 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 feel uncertain about about things. That in my mind, I'm like like I'm like look, I work with brain injuries and concussions, and I work with combat care, and I'm like vaccines are the clearest black and most black and white thing I've heard in about a month in terms of how do they work? And I said, I, there, there's nothing as well studied as the, the approach vaccines. And, and, and they were amazed as it, to, to hear that, you know, like in like 1789, Edward Jenner, like used cowpox and, and gave it and gave vaccines for smallpox from a freaking cow and a stick. And that worked. I said, this is so well understood. And yet, Things that you know, uh, you know, I, I would take for granted are you know, everything's uncertain. You know, forget about my trying to explain to a person that 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 was uh, got a blast exposure in Iraq, and now three years later is having problems. Explain to them what I believe is is going on, and, and you know, working in the in the world of fight or flight, and talking about their amygdala and stuff, and then trying to bring that to a level where. Like I'm making up enough of it where even I realize that I don't know the full answer, but I'm trying to explain it in a way that I'm expressing to them enough certainty that they feel good about it. But but then from their perspective, they have no concept. You know, like they had an explosive, you know, they, ex they experienced an explosion five years ago and they've been through 30 professionals and MRI scans and 
Maybe they even got in touch with an artist who helped them to try to create art just as a way of distracting them, but it wasn't applied in the principles you're talking about. And it's like, like, like we're actually gonna use this expression of art, whether it's observing it, walking through an art museum, whether it's creating it, to actually help your body and brain to just open up and let go. Just, not just distraction, but truly to open up to a new level. And that, that's not what, what they typically get. They typically get, they paint something and they feel good. I'm like, that's good, that's very yeah. important. And that alone is worth it. But let's even take it further, you know. And and I love. I think it said on your website about how every time you go to an art museum, it you know it, it should be a, a a new experience and and how important it is. And I live for art museums. Every city I go into, and I'm not a big art con, you know uh, um, aficionado, but I just love the way they. It's like a library to me, yeah. you yeah. know. I just love yeah. that. Well, you know? yeah. yeah. And and you know and and it really just allows you to. Like all of this is art, all of it. And, you know, allow yourself to appreciate, you know, the the full spectrum of it. You know, even if you say, I could do this at home. I love when people say that I could do that. You know, I'm like, you could, you know, and go do it if you want to. But but that doesn't take away from the value of it. So uh, uh, can you give us some some examples of some of the specific stuff you do, uh, you know, with with maybe medical students or other professionals? Sure. So, um, well, I'll give you an example from, so I, I just on Tuesday finished the semester that um, I teach at Brandeis University. So those aren't medical students, but those are act- a group of students who are all intending to go into uh, healthcare. A bunch of them are pre-meds and pre-nursing and uh, pre-psychology um, and as well as health policy. But what I do in that, that class is a class on medical uncertainty um, in which arts experiences are a really important part of their learning um, as, a, as an experiential, you know, as a simulation of uncertainty. So, um, and what I do in that class is actually very, very similar to what I do with medical faculty or clinical teams, um, although I like sort of frame it in slightly different ways. Um, but in that class, after sort of learning some of the basic science of uncertainty, different types of uncertainty, different um, challenges it, present is, it presents in healthcare. Um, and then we, we look at um, really just like a, on, a, on a very basic level, sort of what clinical reasoning is all about and bias and different um, factors that can influence decision-making and performance uncertainty, like everything from incentive programs and insurance to structural racism, white supremacy, culture, uh, stress, sleep, team dynamics. Um, we, 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 there's a lot that we, we don't go into any in particular depth, but we just try to sort of touch on the, some of the most um, influential ones. Um, and then we move into our section on the art of seeing in uncertainty and um, the, the art of affiliation. So that means like human, you know, human beings, regardless of role, regardless of hierarchy, regardless of whatever difference or signifiers, like humans to humans looking together and really striving to see. And so in that section of the class, um, I teach them this facilitation method called visual thinking strategies, which is a teaching method for, for holding groups um, in a in a space of looking together at what and talking about what they see in art. And so they're interpreting, they're analyzing. Um, and it's always it's very open-ended, but it's also always evidence-based. So anytime anybody makes an interpretive um, statement, 
you say, what do you see that makes you say that? So they always bring it back to a concrete observation. And it always brings in so many different, like very, very different lines of thought. And so a basic, and this is a method that like teachers train in, you know, and actually use with their students. Um, so I give them a very basic level, uh, sort of quick and dirty training in that. And then they each have an opportunity to facilitate for our class. So um, there, and, and as we do that, so in this particular class, there are 14 students. So we did it 14 times over the course of a few weeks. Um, and some of them selected their own art and some of them, you know, I provided art for them to use, but, um, through that process, they each individually sort of had the experience of like leading a group through the uncertain experience of talking about a, a new work of art. And they were adorable. They all like sort of deliberately didn't let themselves learn about the art to preserve the authenticity of the uncertainty of the experience. Um, but then what also happens over time inevitably, which is so cool, is that the group it, it changes the dynamics of how the group relates to each other so much that they start, they they change and grow as a group. And so um by the end of the 14 sessions, I mean they they, they were doing so well with it. And um we were just having these having these great discussions and um you know, they and what they were able to pull from that are actually some core principles of adaptive strategies in uncertainty and leading in uncertainty. And so then at the end of that process, you know, we we had a couple sessions really extrapolating those principles and the resources that are available to them um, in uncertainty. Oh, and I should have said that. So at the very beginning of the class, I have them respond to a patient. Kate, we watch a short video on a, a really uncertain strange case of patient uncertainty is actually from like Lisa Sanders diagnosis column. So she has these videos and we watch one of those and um, they have a little assessment that they do to assess their own response to uncertainty. And then at the very end, they do the same assessment so they can actually get feedback on their own response to uncertainty and you know what changed and they sort of break that down. So that's, um, that's in a nutshell. Um, cool. you know, I, we do I, Lots to say, but that's kind of the the overall like accordion yeah. of it. I I like I like uh, the part where you see get them to what do you see concretely? Get them grounded oh, first. Say that. Yeah, because because um, bef before I was introduced to focused breathing, uh, I used to do fine on written tests, but I would become paralyzed in oral examinations. And Dave, during my oral boards and physical medicine rehabilitation. Uh, I was shown a picture of somebody who was amputated below the knee and my lips started moving, giving a prescription for somebody with an above knee amputation. Now, a six-year-old could have said, that person has a knee. The guy was trying to help me. He said, why don't you go over to the window and take a minute? So I already knew now I'm screwing up. It's zero strategies. So I went over to the window and just sweated for a while uh, profusely and then came back and I literally leaned into the image to see if I could see what he was trying to get me to see when he said, look. And Hollywood had to say is, does this person have a knee? Oh yeah, 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 they have a knee. Oh, okay, that's the, the prescription you'd want. So it's amazing what you can't see. Right. When you're overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. And you know, one of the things, so one of the things that often feels really weird to students when they do visual thinking strategies at first is that 
there's a lot of silence and a lot of like taking a pause and they often feel like they should be rushing or filling the space with, you know, dialogue or saying something. And that, um, you know, it, you know, one of them, he just said the other day, like, it just feels so absurd and so awkward <laughs> to be silent. Um, but you actually, when you do it over time, you actually notice that like, you really do get it, more data and better data. It's a mandatory skill. Slowing, slowing it down and taking that pause. Yeah. yeah. It's a mandatory skill. Uh, yeah. uh, it's a mandatory and skill. It's so counter counter normative to like our predominant culture. Well, it, it is if you're in these fields, but for yeah. an artist who's right. creating, like, right. like, you know, like, like, like I'm always fascinated when among artists, like, like, you know, you're like thinking, well, this maybe took two hours to do. Like, no, it took me five months and I went back and I went back. I'm like, what? You know, and it isn't that they had to think about how to do the shading right for three weeks. They just needed to, to take, take steps away from it. And, and they often have, several you know uh, several canvases going at once or they they'll 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 you know work intensely then take a deep breath and take a deep break for weeks but we, and that's not what healthcare at all you know that's just not the system it's set up but I, I you know the question is how do you then incorporate that and how do you normalize that because you know that this whole urgency thing is the worst possible way to make a decision whether you're in a committee meeting or in the or you're in the operating well, room like you don't want to be you, doing it then you i think i think you need the leaders to say stillness is important it's not a waste of time because that's what the hard drivers stillness is a waste of time and then and then what I do uh, is actually tangibly sort of force you uh, in kind ways, in objective ways, to, to, to start getting actually better at the skill. So it, it always needs top and bottom. Yeah. And, and I think that's what Alexis is doing, um, yeah. uh, trying to guide people who believe stillness is a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that it, it, it does, it's going to take work on like all levels there's like structural levels and then there's practice and you know like even like things like a group visit right that actually is going to allow slowing down a little bit or, um you know there there's um but then there's all these tiny little like micro ways that really seasoned clinicians are able to kind of create a little bit of time or, or tame time in different ways. And that's been something really interesting to me over many years, you know, having the privilege of like working with in a, in a co-teaching way, because I'm always teaching across disciplines with like a nurse leader or a chiropractic leader or a medical leader and um, noticing these common principles like that, you know, medical teachers who really care about this stuff will echo. And one of them is like, you know, just finding really small ways to just take that pause. If it's like getting up and meeting the patient out in the waiting room and walking with them in to, to get a few more minutes and to actually have the opportunity to observe them in their posture and sort of see what stands out or, you know, these teeny little ways that, um, really seasoned clinicians, you know, like change the 
change the positioning of the laptop. So we're looking at the note together and I'm saying, did I get this right with you in the room rather than doing it after the patient has left these little, little hacks that invite that, that pause and that co-creation. I, I think it's really important and really interesting as, as much as we need the structural change. It's that stuff that also needs to be taught and included. I, I would also add that you know, one of the most important things, whether you're trying to make a diagnosis, whatever that actually means, or whether you're trying to est establish a relationship with, the, with the, the patient, or whether you're trying to risk communicate what the information, whatever it is, is actually just being there with the person in their kind of tempo and who they are and not rushing to, like the diagnosis is way overrated. Okay, like I know we think it's a it's the end all because the treatments are not that exacting. Personalized medicine is make believe. Okay, it, it really means we don't actually know what we're doing for most of them. So for the three percent that we actually know something, we're going to call it personalized. Like that still leaves the ninety seven percent that don't have a genetic marker or some sort of an other biomarker that leaves them in the cold. So I, I don't like that terminology, but it it you know. The treatments are not that difficult in healthcare. I know, you know, you, people think, oh, this, you know, yeah, years of study and cutting edge medicine. I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe. But there's actually so many underlying treatments that we can be instilling in every in every setting. You know, whether it's as simple as, you know, uh, what are what are some stress modifiers? What are some dietary things? What are some activity things? What are just understanding about your body better and really feeling a healing body? So just you know, being in sync with the patient and their family is so much more important than worrying about the time or the documentation. And, and that's not something you're taught. You know, and you're it, taught how to it, be more efficient, you know. It, it is difficult, though, in medical training, the fear that someone's going to ask me about the carnitine shunt. Yeah, again. I'm worried about uh, it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, so, and God forbid you, you miss a diagnosis. I miss that. Like you didn't miss the diagnosis. Like there's many things going on with this human being. And I'm addressing those things that I've observed and that I've found or that I've discovered and I'm treating them. All right. Like there really is not like, like everybody's like, well, what if you miss that pulsating aneurysm in their belly? I'm like, okay, I get that. I'm like, but so spend a little bit of time and really just breathe and get on the level of the patient. The patient will love that, will bond with you, will share information in a different way with you. Like there is no magic, like, like, like potion you figured out there, you know, we're not like a bones in Star Trek who's waving the tricorder reading over and finding the problem. That's, we're not even close to that in healthcare, but, but I do think we need to be able to just spend the, the time and you know, by the time you've been doing it 20 years, you can more rapidly process the extraneous noise and not hear X, Y, and Z, but say, okay, what is what's actually happening in this interaction? You know, so so, so, yeah. so whatever you do, Alex, on your new website, don't use the word precision medicine. Okay? No, please don't. I think please, that's <laughs> please. Uh, it's such it's such mockery of what we're actually actually we're trying to go the other way. We're trying to say, like, look, the reason COVID is killing all these people of color and of low SEC is not because of some genetic precision BS. It's because our society has set them up to be unbelievably unhealthy, despite their best desires and efforts and great genes. They have awesome gene pools. 
but, part of that. But all we do is let is, is set them up in, in areas where there's garbage food, where exercise means something very different, where stress is like like survival. It's like, what are you talking about? Stress management. How about survival management? Like we have set people up for for poor health. And then we say, well, we're going to use precision medicine. It's like, what a crock. You know, it's like, you know, people believe smart bombs. You know how much, like, how many people die from smart bombs who aren't supposed to die? Like, they're not that smart. Precision medicine's not that precise. And it's okay. Like, let's, let's, let's be okay with looking at population health approaches, you know? And, and you know, let's, you know, I was, I was going to say something before I forgot. It's like, you should slip in an MRI or a chest X-ray with the edges removed into your art interpretation and have them look at what looks like a piece of abstract art that's actually a chest X-ray, because I bet you'd get three radiologists giving you three different interpretations if it was art, you know? know, Because when I look at an MRI of the head and I've done this a lot, I'm like, I don't know what I'm even looking at there. You know, and I, I do this a lot because there's a lot of abstract art and how you kind of put it together. But if you remove the edges of an MRI and just put the pixels or a chest X-ray, you'd get a lot of people kind of saying, I don't know what I see there. It could be a bird. It could uh, be, you know, you know, and, and, and I'm not being that facetious. It's, you know, no, a lot of healthcare could, is abstract. Yeah. You, could, you could even do a histology slide where you're so zoomed in. Yeah. talk about it and then zoom out and say, Oh, this is actually, you know, a liver normal cell. red blood shell smear. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I definitely, I definitely think that, you know, like, like a lot, we're not that far away from abstract art interpretation in a lot of healthcare. And, you know, we feel, you know, if you, you, you talk about, you know, the, the importance of taking a trip to an art museum, which I, which I cherish. I'm like, you know what? A lot of what we are seeing in medicine is abstract things that we're giving meaning to because we have a group ethos that it means something. In other cultures, that means something totally different, whatever the the, the, the symptoms. I don't mean a, specifically a blood smear or a lab test, although even that has variability, but just what a person tells you or what the physical exam seems to be revealing to us. I'm like, well, in other cultures that that they wouldn't think that they would think that that is evil humors and it's because their kidneys are stopped up with X or Y. You know, you're seeing X and like, well, in the in the Chinese culture, that actually is a sign of poor perfusion of the kidneys. And there are ways to enhance that, you know, and that doesn't mean somebody's right or wrong. It's probably both. You know, we can deal with that. But but I, I don't think American doctors and healthcare pro- providers are that open to it, except under your hands, Alexa. You know, no, no. And I do think and, and question is, how do we institutionalize this? How do we grow this kind of group decision making or understanding? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So there is like so much you said. Um to respond to. I get that a lot. I'm sorry. Uh, No, no, it's okay. I think one of the things that um, like the pandemic has just made so, um, so starkly clear is uh, just like what you were saying to your earlier point about like the distrust of medicine and the, um, the just like the, the way in which medicine is really intertwined with so much unwellness in society in particular, like people of color and the, you know, black communities is like, 
the also the the just basic history, right? Like the the history of experimentation um, on that community that like was that medicine is built on. Um, so like you know the the distrust of the vaccines, like it it makes there's so there's so much there. Um, so I just wanted to recognize that um, as as an influence. Um, but to your question about um, you know how to how to make this broadly much much more broadly accessible and helping people what what you're saying I think this all started actually about like you know a bee in your bonnet about precision medicine and how like wrong that is and so one of the things actually that um, I'm trying to do is move the conversation not not about precision but about accuracy so accuracy is a really interesting word if you look it up in the OED um, and like I'm I'm super interested in like the very basic basic meanings of words so accuracy doesn't actually mean like a right answer accuracy means um, to meet or to run together so it's like um, and it, it's it's about like actually like understanding about touch in the same way that like an observation is about like getting something touch or the way like um, there's this beautiful quote about listening by this um, poet, um, Susan Stewart. She says that listening is touch at a distance. So accuracy is about like actually really understanding and getting some, somebody and meeting them person to person. And accuracy is like, that's what an artist does. I mean, I remember when I was training really hard in very basic observation drawing I'm not doing a lot of drawing and painting these days, but there was a time, um, you know, a couple decades ago when I, I really could like draw like absolutely anything. Um, and I was doing these like weekly, you know, just six hour long drawings. And um, those, those sessions are all about striving for accuracy and learning to like, you know, not look at what you expect to see, but actually like, wait, is that, is that right? No. Okay. That's accuracy. And it's just like this constant act of calibrating to really meet and get something. Um, and so I think that, you know, like there's that proverb you hear about the guy who lost his keys in the dark and he's looking and like, he's looking under where the lamppost is and they're like, you know, do you, did you think you drop your keys over there? He says, no, but why are you looking there? Well, that's where the light is. So like, that's an example of like precision, right? But accuracy is, is out the window and we actually need to be thinking about accuracy. Um, right. And so, and you know, what, it, what, like how much suffering in the world comes from like, not being accurately seen or understood, right? The false judgments, like the, that, that's probably, you know, the, there's many different like styles and types of that, but that's probably, you know, probably the most underlying root cause of suffering in medicine and across the world is inaccurate uh, representation. So um, it, it takes like human to human um, interaction to, to be able to achieve that kind of accuracy in like small daily moments of the clinic and then like big societal 
um, understandings as well. well. Another another big thing I is can see my battery is like about to run out, so I'm just gonna go. I mean, I'll stay on the call, but I'm gonna go run and get my. I think, I think Ron was doing yeah. jumping jacks before. Okay. So we're used to this. But I'm still know. here, but I'm just yeah, okay. walking through my messy house. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I think I think one of the things you brought up is that sometimes the clinicians need to kind of leave their egos behind. Yeah. And and, and you know and like like okay like maybe you think that's the diagnosis and those are the words you want to use, um, but they don't act, they're not appealing to the person who's hearing them the way you've brought them across. They're not helpful, you know, yeah. you know, rather let's talk about, you know, let's try to shape something that is accurate in confluence of the right things or the beliefs. So what is the patient or family member thinks going on? You know, what's causing their sleep problems or their pain or their or their heart racing? And then what do you think's going on? And how do we kind of bridge and use the right words so that we can move somewhere from it? Because I don't actually care what the book definition of that condition is. What I care about is, is how do I come up with with a explanation? Well, I'm getting dizzy with an explanation, uh, an explanation that allows us to then launch to wellness because I don't want to get the right ICD-10 code if it, all it does is kind of just turn off, turn them off. You know, like there's, there's a new term, maybe it's not new, but functional neurologic condition. I'm like, look, if you, if you don't want to say psychosomatic, I'm down with it. I mean, that's, you know, and, and, and it's fine to understand that even psychosomatic has got layers of physiology. But functional neurologic problem is, is just not a good word phrase. And that's what the term where they're using for, for COVID-related conditions now. They're using it for certainly a lot of conversion disorders. I'm like, that's just not a cool word but, or phrase. You know? But, but I, I should, before I forget this, if you've never um, seen the movie or read the book, uh, the, the Madman and the Professor, about the OED, how it was developed. Oh. And then, no, you I haven't. have to. Simon, okay. Simon Winchester, amazing book, but great movie with uh, Sean Penn and the guy who's the, um, what's his name? Um, the guy who was, um, I'll think of it. Uh, he, he, his dad was a terrible uh, anti-Semite and so was he, and he got booted off the world stage. The actor, uh, famous actor, I'll think of it. Uh, okay. Uh, so... One of the, one but, of the but, analogies. The Mad Men and the Professor. You okay, second, well, you know, my kids are also, my six-year-old especially is like, she's obsessed with etymology. And, oh, then you have to read this. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, yeah the, the, how they actually got the book, how they got the Oxford English Dictionary written. That sounds awesome. Where the words came from, how they do it. It's fascinating. That's amazing. Uh, and the movie's terrific too. So anyway, yeah, go ahead. Cool. Uh, one of the things that might work with some of your medical students, um, you know, talking about the motor system and the sensory system, we have a society of doing and yeah. not listening. And, and that's the motor system. So I don't say that the, you shouldn't be studying the motor system. You shouldn't be a doer. We just are out of balance with listening with our five senses, et cetera. Um, and artists are what? They are listeners. They, they, they can't start doing until they've, been an accomplished listener of yeah. at least one of one of five senses. So the sensory system, so we just need to be more in balance with the listening, yeah. with the doing, the sensory, with the motor uh, systems. Yeah. And 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 the movie 
it's it's you know the movie's getting older and older but there's a nice scene in avatar where she's teaching him awareness and listening and crawling on the tree and he's just a doer and now he's paraplegic and now he's forced to change something in the way he mentally approaches the world and she's teaching him to listen to his five senses and that's awareness and that's what artists i believe do are, are skilled at compared yeah. to it. I never thought about it in terms of the two different systems, sensory and motor. So you're saying motor is doing and sensory is, is like attuning and taking. It's listening. I, I, when you talked it's about poetry, you're touching. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you talked about poetry being touch, yeah. Yeah, th this is, you know, you're, you're, if a poetry, if, a, if, if words on a page don't strike me, I didn't really listen. But it, now if I take the time and listen to the words I just read, from a yeah. distance now they've touched me yeah yeah that's awesome i'm actually um i will use that and in fact I'll, i'm gonna i'll use that tomorrow <laughs> so i'm doing a workshop for a surgery team on listening there's so, a sign there's a silent h you can't hear in my name it's g-h-a-r-b-o when when you mention me Okay, you got I'm it. just kidding. I, no, no, I'm kidding. Of course I will. Oh, no, I will. It's a nice I, little I, I, I have had myself <laughs> appropriated so much over so many years. I feel very the, strongly about referencing my colleagues, so I will. The, the H is silent. It's, got it. It's, got it. Okay. We got, no, I, I like the, those are nice <laughs> twists on that. Very clever. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, you know, I, 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 I thought we were, it was a sign of the apocalypse when, uh, a number of orthopedic surgery colleagues were talking about the importance of the team and working <laughs> together and listening to each other. But, I mean, I was on a call yesterday with a bunch of same bunch of, of range of interventionalists and, and surgeons and other people. And all they're talking about is holistic now and interdisciplinary team. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know. And, and it's, it's, you know, makes my heart sore like that of an eagle. But I also don't know if they've just appropriated the words, because I swear that's all we've been doing in the rehab world and brain injury and pain for my 35 years doing it. And I'm like, all of a sudden, everybody just says, well, we got to be more than just a multidisciplinary team. We need to be interdisciplinary or even transdisciplinary, or uh, it's not just medicine, it's integrative medicine. It's not complicated. I'm not going to have any more work. I'm I know. Work. It's like, look, I, I, I'm down with everybody being, you know, hip and it, I'm, I'm cool with that. But I'm like, like, I don't think you know what that word means. You know, it's inconceivable that these surgeons know what it means to be listening and to be, you know, they, they, they had to force themselves to take an actual time out. That's what they call it, right? Before surgery and afterwards. That's, like, that's a that's, great example. Like, they are forcing themselves to stop, look, and listen, right? And, you know, and what they need to figure out is how do I do that outside of the OR break as well? How do I take time to journal ron was holding up the journal or to breathe or to go to the art museum i mean i mean i spend too much time listening to the world now and, and i'm doing less than i used to but each thing i do is more rewarding for that but 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 good luck with the surgeons tomorrow there that's awesome i love surgeons but but like guys this isn't just about making you know the surgery better it, you know you know it's more than that you know i would i would actually say take a time out before you even recommend the surgery because I'm thinking some of those surgeries don't need to get done in the first place. And 
maybe we're not listening to the patient, you know? So Alexa, one of the things I enjoy uh, doing this podcast is because I'm continually amazed at some of the things Dave says out loud, <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. I don't think the surgeons are listening anyway. No, no, no. So, <laughs> so we're good. No, it wasn't hurt anyway. So no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm down with needed surgery, but there's a lot of it. I'm like, ooh, no. To no, be you're fair, bad about them though. To they be fair. They don't don't care. They're laughing all the way to the bank. Oh no! Well, actually, they're getting paid less and less, sadly, and so so they're actually that's why they're trying to become team members. But so you know, don't go to a surgeon if you don't want surgery. You know, if you don't want a wooden cabinet, don't go to a carpenter. If you you know, I I, I get that, but but in like like you know, I'm like I I was at a, a talk yesterday morning that we sponsored from a guy that's talking all about doing a certain type of injection for pain, you know, whatever, it was sort of stem cell precision medicine noise, right? And, and, I'm, and, and people are lapping it up like a cat in milk. And I'm like, you know, nothing that he's saying has ever been shown to work, ever, ever, okay? Like, but why are you listening? Because he's saying it in a precision sort of way and he's appealing to that, this desire to cure. All right. I'm like, you know, I, I don't I don't know that, you know, I, I don't blame people for those desires, but I'm like, can we, you know, patients don't necessarily come to you for cures. They may think that. All right. They're bringing to you questions. They're bringing to you concerns. They may be bringing symptoms, you know, whatever phrase you want to use. And, you know, I think it's 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 one of your roles is to really listen, process it and then kind of come to an accurate decision. And, and diagnosis perhaps that allows you to then help them, you know, bring that all together, you know, and, and I think the cure thing is something doctors think we have to do. Like I, I it wasn't one of Hippocrates, Hippocrates things. He didn't say, you know, thou shalt cure, you know, he said, don't do any harm. All right. And so, you know, I said, you know, you're not curing people of arthritis at age 50, not happening, never going to happen. You know, you're not curing people of, that have chronic pain, you know, of any age, like what you can do is you can not hurt them and then help them to better understand and appreciate what's going on. And maybe they can cure themselves. That's occurred all the time, but I ain't cured anybody. I can give people some knowledge and information, but I would just say, so, so, you know, I, I'm down with surgery, maybe not so much, but, but I do think we need to kind of start to like, say, can we please get out of this God phase and just help people with some tools, you know, and inform them. Just like an investment person ain't getting you rich. He's getting himself rich or herself rich. But along the way, if he can give you some information and some financial security, I'm down with that. You know, so just like Ron, the artist, is never going to make Dave, the physician, a good artist. But he, he certainly is very supportive and says, yeah, sure, create. I love that because I, I think the create the journey is way more important, you know, yeah. than the end result in art. Like I love the the stuff I come up with. Nobody else might, but I love it, and it feels good. So, yeah. so. Well, I will be very happy. I will feel like I've achieved what I hope to achieve with the surgery team and this this work. Thankfully, it's it's actually with the whole team. It's not just with the surgeons, but if they can. Um, like, like Ron was saying earlier, if they can like recognize the um, 
potential of listening and see see their work and see each other with a new lens. And that's what like looking at art can really shake up and allow us to do, then um, then I will have done my job. But um, nice. Yeah. Nice. There's lots of there's it's a crazy space, healthcare, huh? Like I mean no, our whole yeah, no, no it's all, and, and, and we need more folks like you and Ron Johnson and, and the abstract artist creativity focus. And we need to bring athletes into the healthcare space. Like I'm working with a former uh, 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 a professional running back now on a, on a, a, a community of wellness. I love it. It's, it's fascinating to hear, him, you know, and, and, and he digs kind of the healthcare piece and, you know, and he's got, you know, but but he's very in touch with athletes and, and, you know, he's like, look, this is how you bring information to them about wellness, you know, because they, they, you know, they have a belief system. They've, you know, they've worked their entire lives in this world of professional or, or amateur sport or organized sports. And to come at them with X or Y isn't going to do it. But if you can speak to them in their language, I think that's cool. But I think we need to bring more people together more differences you know obviously different cultures and races and everybody together is awesome too i mean and, and vital but i do think bringing folks that really have creativity and, and artistry as their as their soul because like like they're not looking for the mona lisa they just create to create you know like like you know i am i'm i don't stop looking for the ultimate diagnosis or cure like i'm looking to educate and to empower yeah. You know, but I definitely think we can bring. So, so please, Alexa, keep, keep in the space, bring more folks in the creativity world into healthcare um, and into physical performance space. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I, I think it's awesome. Thank so, you. But, but well, um, I, I'm actually going to be offering this summer for the first time ever, some sort of mini versions of the class that I teach on medical uncertainty um, yeah. and so my hope with those are just short. They're just two, two hour sessions, uh, but there'll be enough of a sort of introduction to uncertainty in medicine and enough, you know, enough interaction to really bring people from sort of a, a failed and out of date concept of uncertainty to this place where they actually, you know, see on a theoretical level and then have experienced in art how uncertainty can be like a studio where people can actually create and enable one another. Um, so those workshops are called the shared concept. And the idea is like to bring a shared concept to facilitate a shared concept of uncertainty in medicine. Um, and they're gonna be really informative and also really fun and interactive. Um, and so there'll be two of them this summer and I'd be delighted to offer your listeners a 30% off nice. um, uh, promo code. So if, if people are interested, I have set that up on my website. You can go to the artspractica.com slash events page. And if you want to enroll in the, in the workshop, you can use the uh, promo code abstract. All yeah, I, I thought it was going to be the H is silent. I thought you were going to take it to the next level. I know. <laughs> Well, I'll make a special one just for there you. you. Go. Yeah, thirty-one percent off if you like. like that. Yeah. <laughs> Alexa, do, do you do you leave folks with with some something after you've completed that? I don't just mean like a little like certificate, but 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 like like some creativity things, like you know a box oh, of creativity things. 
yeah that they can that they can use or do i just would think that um i get i i don't actually give them stuff they can do for creativity but i can certainly refer them come on guys for that yeah i mean but 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 i do think i do think kind of you know because i you know as as someone who's done a lot of teaching i think you know unless you're kind of giving them the next step yeah it was awesome they kind of remember it and then they're like now what do I do you know well what they get so they they, they walk there's a bunch of stuff they walk away with but like the two kind of main things are they do get um a a list of actual like adaptive Uh strategies in uncertainty um and you know really what they're getting is um a strength in relationship to art and what that brings is the kind of trust the ability to trust yourself and the the savviness in trust in like communicating and co-creating with other humans that like literally is the exact same trust that we need to recreate this space. And I think like strengthening simply looking very boldly at art and at humanity, frankly, like um, there's, you're working at a level there that's, um, that's like this very basic level of, um, human nature and humanity. And we can work that level, um, in relationships to art. So whether they're like new to art and they've never really like gone to a museum before and really looked for themselves and sort of enjoyed that, or whether they have already a very deep and existing relationship, it's going to, it's going to strengthen that and advance that. So even though I'm not giving them activities to do, I think it's the same. It does converge in that just like having a relationship to art. And this is very front of mind because I was just teaching about this last week. And just this morning, I wrote a blog post called Why Have a Relationship to Art? And you can check that out as well. So, so essentially, the art—it's not the art of medicine. The art is medicine. Is kind of uh, yeah. Medicine is—it's whatever your art is, right? Like we all have so many different arts, right? Like you know, my my arts in my life: being a parent, like making my home, being a friend. Sure, I draw. Sure, my writing practice, right? I show up at that every day. Um, running my business—all of these things are art. And when I have a breakthrough in my garden, like when I'm suddenly like, who put all those pink dianthus out there? I hate them. (laughs) And I'm going to move it to the front and I'm going to clear it out and make it greens and ferns and get these weeds out there. And then, oh, I get this mental clarity. It's like when I do that in my garden, it's no coincidence that that's like when I figure something out in my business or that my kids really need, right? It's all... We're all engaged in arts all the time. And what happens in one context is something, sometimes the very best thing that can happen for something else in another context. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what being a human is about, but it's something that artists really understand and, and live and, and trust into. Very cool. Very cool. Well, it's been a pleasure spending time with you. Uh, it's a joy, it's a joy. Especially, I get to see both of you exercise and move around during the the, the cast. I should take you out to my garden next. Oh uh, yeah, I want to see I that know, clear I, space. Yeah, we can show you. I think Ron, Ron and I are buddies on Facebook, and, so he knows I've and, been thinking about this. 
and my dog was barking at the guy coming to I know. Fix I, I the saw sprinkler. you close the window. We saw it all. Yeah. <laughs> I was here patiently just watching yeah. it all just happen. It was nice. I had so many experiences here today. I just feel very honest. Yeah. So thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you for spending time with us. Stay well. And thank you too. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Alexa Miller for joining Dr. G and Dr. C today on the Abstract Doctors Podcast. For more information on Alexa, please visit artspractica.com backslash events backslash. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information on podcast, events, and subscription boxes, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on social media under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for our next appointment soon.